Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome to Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, Lisa is not available, so I've been asked to moderate the session today. And today we have a delightful two young men. When I look at them, I have a hope for the future of the world. Because one is an international student. When I came here 60-some years ago as an international student, I was scared shit. <laughs> nobody understood me, and I understood nobody. But he won the prize for the speech contest. The second one is truly a miracle. He's a first-year student. I don't think he even is 20, 18. And he won the prize. He's a management student. And uh, it's an amazing young man. And it's a real privilege, privilege to have them here and the subject matter is civic, civil liberty, which is a very, very hot issue today, especially today in the parliament. And uh, they're going to speak 15 minutes each. And uh, uh, you can get to ask questions. But before I ask Sandin to come up and speak first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this event, as you know, we are a non-profit organization and supported by many people, especially you people, who paid the membership. I hope everybody did. $25 to Annalise. And University of Lethbridge, Shaw TV, Lethbridge Herald, and the radio CKXU. And be careful... What's your language? It's live broadcast. And uh, Shaw TV will show the repeat of today's session every day. What time? 8 Sunday, 8 p.m. and 7 o'clock every day. So anyway, without further ado, I'll ask Sandrin to come up and speak about Civic Liberty. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. So I really want to appreciate you guys for coming out and like supporting me and supporting this idea of civil liberties and this promotion of public affairs and how we can actually grow as a culture and a society to look at these issues, to look at what is really going on in our world and how we can be prepared to deal, deal with any changes or work with the different circumstances that arise. So I just wanted to thank you all for that. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. If a stranger stopped you on the street and he asked you for your email, your name, your phone number, your birth date, your house address, etc., would you, would you give it to him? No, because I for sure wouldn't. 
yet unconsciously we do this almost every single day think about the last time you heard the lines uh yes sir and what's your phone number oh yeah oh sorry it's 403 blah 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 the question we need to ask ourselves is is that scenario any different people who want your information they're not stupid they're not going to ask politely and they're not going to show a big flashy sign to get it. What they will do is they will give you a deal that you just can't refuse. Now, most of the time when you give your information away, you deem that person or that company trustworthy, mainly because either they're a big company like Safeway or Savons and they have the prior legal requirements to solicit, or you know what, they honestly haven't done anything stupid or before, so you just keep trusting them, of course. But how do you know what your information is actually used for? How do you know that you can trust the person behind the till and you can trust that that company is looking out for your best interest? You don't. Now, a really big topic is internet and all the scams that come flooding through your browser the second that you open up your computer. But see, with internet, we're a lot more aware of what's going on. We see these scams. We see the problems that, that all these companies are trying to throw at us, and we, we watch out for them. We are aware of the tricks and the motives that these companies on the internet are using to get to us. But now, have you ever made the real-world connection, the connection to these scams in person, Think about the last time that you were offered a deal and you gave away information without even thinking twice. For example, think about the last time you were at the grocery store and you were given the opportunity to save money and earn points. The only catch is that you had to give away your name, your address, your phone number, your email, your birthday. You assure yourself, you know, this is different. This is different because of this face-to-face -face interaction. And because it's face-to-face, -face, you feel obligated to say yes. You feel obligated to give away your information. The person in front of you just gave away their information. The person behind you is probably going to give their information. So you feel like, well, I just got to do what everybody else is doing. But you don't know the people behind the till. You don't know what these companies are really using your information for. Think about it. What if, what if the person behind your till was some guy who just got out of jail two weeks ago for identity theft? <laughs> right? You don't know. He's working a minimum wage job and he's just trying to get through. And you don't know that person just like you don't know the person behind that internet scam. Now, the willingness of people to give out information is, is just absolutely ridiculous. And sometimes we have even been... Um, we've been grown to assume that people need information for different things. Now, in reference to a personal experience, I used to be in the uh, door knocking and sales industry as a summer job, and we always had this one problem of people not giving us the right information. They'd always be scared or something like that. And I will never forget this one quote that the supervisor told us, and that was, if you sell the product well enough, people aren't going to hesitate to give you whatever information you need. Now, being a top 10 seller in North America, I got to experience this firsthand. I got to see my good friend, Mary, who, she, who I gave her my pitch, just another door. 
and without even thinking, opens her wallet, hands me her social security card and her driver's license. That's, that's ridiculous. Now, of course, all I needed was her name, her address, and her signature. But the fact that she assumed that I needed all this information just blew my mind. It really did. Now, of course, I, I didn't give, this, give them this exact same speech every time somebody would pull out their wallet. I acted ethically, and I got the information I needed, and I told them, hey, have a nice day. But this concept of assuming actually reminds me of something. Now, show of hands, who here has actually read all of the terms and agreements to Apple every time they update one of their softwares? Oh, wow. Nobody. What a surprise. <laughs> right? When you look at these contracts, these terms and agreements, you see that they're complicated, they're long, they're tedious, it takes up way too much time, way too much effort. It's almost like they're designed to not be read. And the accept button, you know, just kind of happens to be right there, really easy. So we all just kind of, yeah, accept. Because we trust Apple. We trust these companies to look out for our best interest. And I always find it funny. I'm like, oh, what if in these terms and agreements there's something like, uh, by accepting Apple's terms and agreements, you therefore allow Apple to download the band U2 onto your iPhone without your consent. Now, it's funny because that actually happened a couple months ago. And it's, it's just ridiculous. People are so easily tricked into giving away their information and signing things they have no knowledge about. Now, looking at a study, where, um, the Carnegie Mellon University conducted by Alessandro Equicity turned up some very interesting results when looking at the willingness of people to give up their information. So we sent some graduate students to a shopping mall near Pittsburgh. The students were instructed a $10 discount card with an extra $2 if the shoppers were to exchange their shopping card information. Half of the people, one out of two, turned down this offer because the $2, I guess, just wasn't enough for them to reveal their shopping card information. Now, the other group of shoppers were offered a $12 discount and the choice to exchange it for $10 if they desired to keep their shopping data private. 90% decided to keep the $12 discount, which meant that they'd be willing to give out their shopping information. So with that, the case appears to be that people who already have ownership of private data are more likely to value it than if it's yet to be required. Now, another point that I find really interesting is why are customers so, willing to, so unwilling to complete long forms with details and all these different things, but it offers a lot of discounts, yet they don't blink when they're sharing their whole life on Facebook? Right? What advantage does Facebook have over another company trying to get the same information? The answer is, it's fairly simple. Facebook doesn't ask for much. It never does. What it does do is it asks small, micro questions. Update your school. Where are you from? Where did you meet? So on and so on and so on. Consumers, they don't even think twice. They just give up their information because it's in such an easy and readily available context that it just is natural to them. 
And, you know, even sometimes they get this nostalgic feeling from getting asked questions. Which relates me to my next point about animalistic behavior and how we have this tendency to express ourselves, show dominance, say, this is me and this is who I am. So a couple of days ago, I actually had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Tom Perks from the Sociology Department at the University of Lethbridge, and we discussed for 45 minutes the idea of animalistic behavior and this tendency to um, show ourselves, show our dominance. And we came to a, a hypothesis, which was the idea of sociology and connection is this desire to be social. So let me expand on that a bit more. Social media, when we look at it, is simply just a platform. A platform in which we accomplish what we strive for in everyday conversations. By giving away information, we're able to connect. We're able to relate to each other. And this means of social media is the exact same principle. We're constantly updating our statuses. We're updating our information so that our friends can know what we're doing and we can know what they're doing. Just like with the telephone and the revolution that came across being able to talk to somebody around the world, we're still advancing this level of interaction every day by applying it to social media. Now, when we give off information, the idea behind it is that we're trying to connect with that person. It's how our society works. It's how we operate. It's ingrained in us. Now, the reason why people in our generation, this young generation, who are so connected to social media, we give away everything, is because it's ingrained in us. We've grown up with the internet. We've grown up with different ways to communicate, and it's in our nature, this idea of spreading information is simply ingrained in us. But the concepts of asking quick questions, using our animalistic tendencies to connect with others, it's the same context that applies to real-world companies. People who want your information, they're smart. They're not going to throw it all out there at once. They're not going to give you a big flashy advertisement. They will play you like a fiddle to get it. With this constant violation of our privacy, we need to protect ourselves by staying open to the facts, not trusting everybody who offers a good deal, sticking to our gut. Just because somebody offers you a good deal does not mean that you have to take it. And offering people asking for your information just because they're, we share all of our thoughts and actions does not mean that we cannot be in control of who deserves to know our information. Ladies and gentlemen, we must understand what is going on and we must be aware of the tricks and the motives that violate our civil liberty of privacy. Thank you. Thank you, Sandon. By the way, that's Sandon Law, L-A-W. Now, next speaker is from Mexico, exchange student. He's with us one semester. And uh, he's going to talk about civic, civil liberty from different angle, from international angle. Raul Vergara. Four hostile newspapers 
are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets. Napoleon Bonaparte. Good evening to uh, good afternoon to everyone. My name is Raúl Vergara, and I believe that free speech is the best defense the ordinary citizen has to protect himself against abuses from his government. Protests and demonstrations are usually very effective ways to call the attention of the authorities to those issues that are harming or that are uh, damaging the population the most. However, save for some special high-profile cases where protests become widespread and erupt in many places in many parts of the country, the norm is that this kind of protests are usually localized in specific areas and many times they will not have such a big effect in a national level. And this is because, obviously, a citizen can only be in one place at one time. And what he says can only be heard by those around him. But what a citizen writes or publishes can be read by thousands of people every single minute. For this reason, at a national level, free press is as important as free speech is at a local level to shield people from violations on their rights. And this is why history is full of cases of authoritarian regimes who abolish all dissident media because a government cannot freely infringe the rights of its citizens if they can be truly informed of what is really happening in their country. A truly free press is the necessary condition for the inhabitants of a country to be able to learn about the state of a nation in a truthful way. And this is of utmost importance because only a knowledgeable, empowered citizenship can truly perform in a democracy. Historically, free press has been very vulnerable to be suffocated by government because before the digital revolution, only a handful of big national newspapers and big TV broadcasters were able to inform a whole nation. But unfortunately, these companies were usually very few and very visible, therefore were easy targets to be manipulated or co-opted by the authorities. I have only been in this country for a month and a half, so sadly I'm still not very familiar with Canadian events. Therefore, I will illustrate my point with an example from Mexico, where I come from. During 72 years, from 1928 to 2000, Mexico was ruled by only one party. In paper, the law said that we were a democratic nation and even charade elections were being held. However, at the end of the day, the candidate of the Revolutionary Institutional Party won every single time in mysterious ways. Of course, he almost never had any real opposition. The whole process was part of a party structure that functioned like a well-oiled machine. The leaders of the party would decide some years before the election whom the next president would be. Then, on election day, some people would just show up, 
and both. Of course, this whole system always drew a lot of criticism because of the lack of transparency that it carried and because it seemed that every single time all, only some specific sectors of the population that had most of the time received some kind of aid by the government were the only ones who showed up and vote and the rest of the people didn't really have any alternative so they didn't really bother. All this led Peruvian Nobel Prize winner Mario Vargas Llosa to call the whole system the perfect dictatorship. Why was that? Well, because the whole process ran very, very smoothly, as it was a dictatorship not of one man, but of a whole party. And no one was bigger than the party who made sure that no president would be able to re-elect himself. At the same time, all the corruption and scheming that happened inside the, the party's headquarters was kept hidden uh, from the population. And for this, the role of the media cannot be understated. In order for the democratic regime to persist, with all the illegality and encroachment of freedoms that it carried, it was necessary for the masses to remain distracted and uninformed about what was really happening. And for this end, television, during most of the time, played the most important part. Because for the overwhelming majority of Mexicans in the 20th century, television was the main, if not the only source of both entertainment and information. Televisa, the biggest Mexican TV company, was born in 1955 and has had a symbiotic relationship with governments ever since. In my country, the law establishes that the state is the owner of all electromagnetic spectrum, so in order for private companies to receive concessions from the government to broadcast TV signals, they must receive government uh, permits. When Televisa was born, the agreement was that in exchange for a near-monopolistic power in national television, the company would become one of the most important tools for the ruling party. Distracting people from political affairs by feeding them bread and circus, and at the same time, it would play the role of the government's unofficial cheerleader by praising all of its policies. I have to stress that during most of the late 20th century, the government used his concession system to make sure that Televisa was the only national TV broadcaster in the nation. So there was really no option for most Mexicans than to watch their programs. Of course, this monopoly was necessary because for uh, the whole official media strategy to be effective, the, seat, uh, the citizens wouldn't be able to have an alternative. If there had been any other option, then competition may be a force that drove uh, a better quality uh, in the programs or a more trustworthy options, but this wasn't allowed to happen. Now, the best way to summarize how Televisa operated comes from the, the man that was the president of the company during most of this era, Emilio Azcárraga Sr. He once said, and I quote, Televisa is a soldier of the party. And in another quote, he said, Mexico is a country with a very screwed popular class. 
and they will never stop being screwed. For television, it is an obligation to deliver entertainment for these people and distract them from the reality and harsh future. This was basically the business strategy. It is impossible to overestimate the influence Televisa had in cementing the party's uncontested rule for so many years. The broadcaster was able to destroy political careers in many different times and also to create them. And for decades, all of its shows showed a very clear pro-government bias. However, as new independent media started appearing in the mid-90s, public criticism of the government became ordinary. And this was uh, very clearly seen in some major scandals that happened in that decade involving one, uh, an indigenous uprising of the native peoples. And another one was the big economic crisis that was known internationally as the tequila effect, that both of them became huge political scandals in, gra in great part fueled because new independent media were starting to appear. And the result of all this was that the, co uh, the party lost majority in the Congress during 1997 and lost the presidency for the first time in 2000. Only 15 years ago did the country have an opposition president in more than 70 years. However, right now, I am very optimistic about the future of free press because of the digital revolution. Today, with the rise of the internet, social media, and smartphones, citizens have enormous variety of sources of information that are very difficult to manipulate or censor. Gone are the days when controlling television concessions gave the government the monopoly over truth. Now, many persons can use their smartphones to learn anything that happens in the country in real time. And also, the new technologies enable the citizens to show and share their thoughts and ideas with thousands of people every moment. Now, for some people, this big democratization of media, thanks to the Internet, is, is com isn't completely a good thing because it makes a potential journalist out of anyone, no matter how unprepared he is. However, I think that the benefits of having a more diverse media by far outweigh the risks. A free press can, of course, be good or bad, but without freedom, the press will never be anything but bad. And what the Internet enables is to have a freer and more diverse media. To sum all this up, and to remind all the members of the public of what is the true function and importance of free press, I wish to finish with a quote by one of the 20th century most important defenders of freedom, Winston Churchill. A free press is the unsleeping guardian of every other right that free men prize. It is the most dangerous foe of tyranny. Where men have the habit of liberty, the free press will continue to be the vigilant guardian of the rights of the ordinary citizen. Thank you very much.